we get started with the actual Q&A, a couple of things I want to really encourage us in or remind us of. The first is regroups. And this is something we try to push very often because what we know with the church our size and with kind of human nature is if you're not connected in a smaller community, a regroup, you're always going to feel like I'm not quite connected to Redemption Church at large, right? And I'll talk to people sometimes that will say, I just, I just don't know if I feel apart. I just don't know if I'm connecting with people. And I'll ask, well, are you in a regroup? And almost every time they say, well, I'm not. And, and so that's the big encouragement. I know it's a little bit of time out of the schedule. I know that you might have to adjust some things. But it's really that important, if, if this is your home, to find that special niche within the home of redemption, which is a regroup. We have a number of regroups, and so I just want to encourage you again, plug into a regroup, especially with this Not a Fan series, because again, the whole heart behind that is to go, man, what is that next thing that Jesus wants me to invest in as an individual, and how can I do that? So really be thinking about, praying about, take the step to get involved with a regroup, uh, it'll be awesome. The way you can do that is you can go onto the website to find out more. You can just put it on the little uh, comment section of your digest card and drop that in the offering basket. We will call you directly. Or we have a regroup table out in the commons. You can stop off there, find out the groups, get the information, and sign up today, right? So you can plug in immediately. Also, don't forget with the Not a Fan series, uh, we have videos online, the reading schedule is online, the questions are online. Now just go to our website. We have a whole page dedicated to this current unified study. So again, really pushing that. The other thing that we are really pushing, really excited about is something we announced last week. It is our Reach 80 and 80 campaign where we want to reach $80,000 in 80 days. That starts next weekend. So I want you to be thinking about, praying about, asking questions of us, of your family, whatever, to say, all right, what does Jesus want me to do in relationship to that? So we're going to be talking about it every week as far as updates, but I just want you to know next week it kicks off. It's a big campaign, very excited about it, and we're asking God to bless in big ways. So next weekend, big, big kickoff to it. And uh, you can, again, be thinking about, praying about how you might be a part of that. So those are the two things I really wanted to state right now. And with that said, I'm going to pass the Q&A off to the guy that's really in charge of it, Pastor Scott Thompson. All right. He's like, I don't have a microphone to be in charge. This is how they control me. There it is. Um, all right. Matt uh, already kind of went over the rules. If you have a question, you can text to that if your phone works in here. Also, you should have all been given a card. You're welcome to write down a question and pass it out or down toward me, and the ushers will pick it up or it'll come toward me. And, um, yeah, there's no rules, although we will get more questions than we have time to, to uh, answer. So if your question is not being asked, you don't have to send it to me ten times. I got it. <laughs> Okay, it's just not going to be asked. And if you're really upset about what did or didn't go on today, it's Ryan at my Duval Church. Yes, Ryan I mean my Redemption Church. Thank you. Right, right, right. Yeah, he'll be happy and, to. And also, to too, don't those. forget. You know, uh, bully texting is cruel. Don't don't do that to Scott on that ten times if he's not doing it. Don't bully him because he's right. tender. You know he weeps a lot in the office. So um, he's a sensitive fellow. You just don't know. So yeah. All right, so there's, we already have some good ones. I'm going to try to uh, combine the first one because they're similar. Um, can you explain what happens to believers and non-believers after death and 
would a child be a particular age in heaven if they die as a child? Great question, man. I wish I had like a, what I already need is a marker board. That's what I need. I need to diagram and I don't have that power. So um, yeah, we, we actually talked about this just a couple of weeks ago when we looked at doctrine, the kingdom, God reigns uh, in the current set of conditions, right? So like we'll use today as the baseline. If someone was to die today as a believer, uh, Paul says, absent from the body, present with the Lord, right? So they go immediately from this reality that they live in to a reality with Jesus in heaven, right? And heaven becomes the destination. Now, heaven is a temporary destination for those who have life and faith in Christ. But that's where they go right now. For those who don't know the gospel, don't know Christ, this goes back to John chapter 3, verse 36, I think it is, where it's like, you have life because you believe, in me. You don't have life, but the wrath of God abides on you because you don't believe in me. I mean, Jesus just makes that clear line, right? It's just one side or the other. And for the person that says, I don't believe, I don't have life in Christ, their destination right now is the, the, you know, the basic idea of Hades, right? Hades isn't the final destination again. It is the temporary holding spot. Now, what I want to say about each of these, heaven or Hades, even though they're layovers, to a final destination, both of those layovers, you're, once you're kind of in that track, so to speak, you're just going that direction. You're going to go to the inevitable outcomes of each one of those. So it's not like, well, if I end up in this kind of layover, can I swap destinations or whatever? No, once you're in the layover spot, Hades or, Hades or heaven, you're eventually going to be hell or the new heaven, new earth destination. But currently, that's what happens. When somebody dies, it's in Christ, heaven. Somebody dies, it's not in Christ, they're in Hades. And eventually, it says in Revelation 20, that Hades is taken and just dumped into the lake of fire, the second death. That would be, quote, hell. All right, so that becomes the final destination. For somebody in heaven, with Jesus now, eventually there's the resurrection, their body and soul are conjoined again, and then they inherit the new heaven and new earth and all of a creation that we can't even begin to fathom, right? So there's your trajectory and pattern. As to whether there is this age issue with children, uh, some people will say, well, there's an age of accountability. We really can't substantiate that idea from the Bible. This is just sort of well, in the Old Testament, uh, when you turned a certain age, basically 12 or 13, the, the Jewish tradition still has bar mitzvah to represent the idea of moving from childhood to manhood. Uh, people take that and say, oh, well, that's when you're accountable to God as an individual, and heaven and hell is now dependent on your belief or lack of belief. Um, we can't really say that, because even in the Old Testament, that was just saying, now you're accountable to the law, um, whether that means you're accountable in the deepest spiritual ways at 13 or at 12, we're guessing, right? This is where we have to kind of default to God knows the human heart. And if you've had children, you know what it's like too. You might have one child that's 10 or 11 and it's unbelievably mature. And then you have another one that's 17 and you're like, oh, Lord Jesus, um, you know, he's like a four-year-old in a 17-year-old body, you know, and like... So, so God knows the heart, God knows the soul, God knows the person better than we do, and that's where we go. We trust God's sovereignty in a lot of those things, too, uh, and so there's no way where we could mark suddenly, here is the line of accountability. Um, it's just a mystery to God. Now, some people ask me, what about babies? What about children when they die? Do they go to heaven? Do they not go to heaven? Uh, our default answer, answer is yes, they go to heaven, and here's why. Uh, we look at the story of David when his little one passes away. And he says, I can't be with the child right now, but someday I will go to be with the child. 
right? This idea of, I, I'm, I'm going to be with him in heaven at some point. Uh, Jesus, let the little children come to me. They were always very safe for Jesus. They were his own in that sense. So we would say that when it comes to the, the loss of children, uh, they're to go to be with Jesus. The loss of those with mental uh, impediments or challenges, same thing. We just kind of trust the grace of God in a very special way for those kinds of things. So hopefully that kind of covers the whole spectrum on that. But that's kind of the, the big picture and how it relates to children and those with special needs. All right. Um, why do you hate legalism so much? It says in 10 words or less, but I think that's a joke, that part. Because it adds to the... All right. Um, I can do it in under 10. Ready? Because it adds to the Bible. That's it. Nicely done. And you will never see that again. All right. So... If you would have said 45 minutes or less, it would have been... All right, so... Uh. All right, very good. If our lives are predestined, why do we ask God for things when we pray? Duh. Here's the thing that sometimes is so difficult in answering questions of this nature is because what the human mind doesn't love to do is hold two truths that seem contradictory as equal. Right? And so the Bible says, uh, you know, God knows what you have need of before you ask. We're going to take it right to the prayer passage, right, in, in Matthew, where it's the, the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6. Uh, pray, but the Lord knows what you need before you ask. You know what I mean? And it's kind of like that. That's kind of the, he already knows, but why should I do it? Well, it's just obedience. You know what I mean? So it's like God calls you to pray, and God knows what you have need of. God calls you to a lot of things, and he already knows how it's going to transpire. Um, there, there may be things that you ask for that he doesn't give because he knows it's just better. A lot of things just come down to God does things, and we're called to do things, and it's not so much about, well, where does his action leave off and my action begin? He just says, this is what you do. The other part of that is that he builds into the system, like in James chapter 4, you don't have because you don't ask. Or you ask with wrong motivations. Um, or you go to like First Peter chapter 3. Uh, the, God doesn't hear the prayers of husbands if they mistreat their wives, which means how you treat your wife does affect your prayer life. Or Mark chapter 11 where Jesus is saying, uh, you're to have faith and do not doubt, believe in your heart and it will come to pass. I mean, there's these verses of tension that we get into. We're like, well, how do I reconcile all of that? My thing is to go, that's true, and that's true. And that's a responsibility, and God's up to something. And I, as soon as I get into the philosophical pitting one against the other, I'm kind of missing the big picture that these things work in remarkable concert in ways that I just can't understand or foresee. And I use this explanation sometimes in other contexts, but I think it applies even to this discussion. Um, for anybody that has some cursory interest uh, in science, particularly physics, you know, you can look at the theory of relativity, and then you can look at things behind quantum mechanics, and you go, how do these two ever fit together? How does the symmetry of the very big and the chaotic of the very small have any unity? And the answer is, we don't know. But they have perfect blended unity, though on paper they're radically, radically opposite and different. Right? And so I just look at the Bible the same way. This is radically different than this, but they have beautiful harmony underneath the surface, something that I don't have privy to. 
in my life to understand. So all I do is I say, God is sovereign, and I'm called to pray. And God's going to do things because he knows of what I have need, but I'm still going to ask anyway. And hopefully I'm going to ask as a righteous man, because again, James 5, the prayer of a righteous man avails much, which apparently the, the prayer of an unrighteous man does not. The uh, husband that loves his wife and cares for her, his prayers are more effective than the guy that isn't good to his wife. Uh, these are all just truths. But God's still working out his plans in accordance with some bigger picture that I don't understand. So just hold the truths equal and praise God for both. Okay, uh, which three people... Well, what do you mean, okay, like, sure, whatever. Oh, this is a good um, one. You know. No, no, no. <laughs> I'm setting you up for the next one. Okay, well... Wait, wait a minute. It's not how I would have answered it, but... Big hand know. for Matt. Isn't he doing a great job, everybody? <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah. I'm kidding. All right, you're going to get some hard ones coming up now. Nice. Um, which three people from the Old Testament would you want on your side in a bar fight? Oh! <laughs> okay. Benaiah because he fought a cat. Um, a lion in a hole. I've been locked with a cat in a bathroom that scared me, so that's a, that's a tough man right there. Um, my, 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 the brains of the operation, Esther. All right? Um, she is on it, man. I don't know if she's good at the street fight, but she's good at coordinating the street fight, all right? Um, she is awesome. So I'd say Beniah, Esther... Uh, and I would go with Nehemiah, because that dude jumped off a wall, cussed everybody out, pulled their beards, and slapped them around. So I'm like, that guy'd be awesome, all right? So those are my three picks, all right? That's a, that's a pretty rounded team right there. I didn't go with the standard, like, Moses with a staff, or, yeah, Samson with a jawbone. That dude was a perv, though. I didn't want that guy on my team. So, um, yeah, I skipped, I skipped him. So, yeah. Well, if you ever get in a bar fight, I'm leaving. I'm, I'm going with Samson. You're picking the, your other team, man. Yeah. All right. So, okay. All I had to do was cut Samson's hair, and he was out of the game, though, man. That's all it would take, man. One bar knife, and it's over. Yeah. That guy's just a sissy in the corner weeping. Hey, you don't want that. Yeah. What do you think the biblical perspective on gay marriage or relationships is? Um, biblical perspective on, I'm going to take it out of both of those phrases. I'm going to take it to actually the core issue right? Uh, these are kind of relationships and marriage. These are the kind of the, the taglines within the cultural problems right now. Uh, we go back to what the Bible says about homosexuality, which is, uh, and I'll forget the Old Testament where everybody goes, oh, in the Old Testament. Uh, just in the New Testament, Romans chapter 1 says that gay sex, let's be real clear about this, homosexual activities, those are the things that God says is sin. He says it's just sin. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says it's just sin. Now, in that list, and this is where I want to be clear, in that list, disobedience to parents is equal to. Greed is equal to. Uh, fornication is equal to. There's a lot of things in Romans 1 and 1 Corinthians 6 as far as listed sins that are in the same list for a reason. It says these are all important and serious offenses to have to consider, right? These are fallen conditions of man. So when we go, well, what is the Bible's perspective, voice, commands in relationship to this? It's to say it's sin. That's what it is. Now, and, and in that, what we need to keep cordoned is the sin is the activity of. I say that because uh, if we said, well, somebody's struggling with the temptation of it, or somebody just doesn't 
feel attraction to the opposite sex is that is that temptation automatically sin. And I'd say, well, if temptation is always automatically sin, then Jesus couldn't even die for us because he was tempted even as we are yet without sin, it says. Right? That's what you see in Hebrews. That's, and it's tethered to James 1, but you see it clearly in Hebrews 4. So temptation isn't necessarily sin. It's when you act on the temptation. So when you have somebody, and I've dealt with this more than once, a person that legitimately goes, I'm just not attracted to the opposite sex, but I'm choosing a life of celibacy to honor the scriptures. They're, they're, I'm not going to go like, oh, well, you're in perpetual, perpetual sin because you're not attracted to the opposite sex, or you're in perpetual sin because you have these, these temptations or leanings. I'm going to be like, no, you're in obedience. You're, you're doing the right thing in right ways. That's a good thing, right? That's a healthy thing. Um, it's the activity of. That's the problem. So that's always where we have to bring it back to. What is not the sin, what is not the problem, is if two individuals, males or females, care about each other. The problem isn't if two males love each other, and and what I mean by that is the biblical definition of love, not sex. Just, I care about you. There are men in my life go, man, I just love that guy. You know, that doesn't, I'm not sinning in that. That's okay, right? But if my affection or my love for another guy converted into then activity that was dishonoring to God and not God's design for the human race, then I would kind of enter into that sin problem, right? So I go back to it's the activity of that's the issue. Now, fast forward to kind of the way this is a politicized debate. Um, the sin is still the same. If, if what breaks God's heart is sexual activity, how is them marrying or not marrying going to stop the sexual activity? How is them having legal relationships or not having legal relationships going to stop the sexual activity. They've been having the sexual activity regardless of these other issues. So these other issues are incendiary, and I think these other issues are issues, but the deeper issue is, man, what's going to take a person in gay activity and move them into freedom? What's going to give them what is necessary to not act out the sinful desires? What's going to give them the strength to then just let it reside a temptation and not an actual sin because they have the wherewithal to say, no, I'm choosing celibacy or I'm actually going to choose the intentional activity of marrying somebody of the opposite sex for companionship even though I may struggle with uh, attraction to that, which I know some gay people, that's what they've done. They've chosen to say, I want companionship. I'm not attracted to a female, but I'm marrying a female to honor God, have relationship, and make a go of it as best as I know how. Uh, How can we see people that are basically uh, stuck in this sin translated to not giving in to that sin. And I always go back to the gospel is the one thing that can change everything. Right? Now, here's what won't stop gay activity. Legislation. And that's not true. If you started killing them all, no lie, you just exterminated them, you could get rid of it. Nobody's going to do that. Right? Nobody's going to go down that road. So, Laws that impede and laws that fight and ultimately laws that sound like they come from the evangelical community, the only thing they do is just keep the actual sin, sin. They, they don't change the sin problem. Um, and it burns bridges to us bringing the gospel. And that's the more concerning part, always for me. It's like, you know, if, if they think I'm against them, why would they ever listen to my gospel? As much as there's probably a number of us, it, I'll, I'll give a quick example, um, my, my daughter just recently started attending Bellevue College. 
And in the six weeks that she's a part of this, she's been solicited by either professors or advisors three times that she should join the gay and lesbian club for any problem she has in life. She's like, well, I'm struggling with this English class. You know who would really understand that? The gay and lesbian club. You know what I mean? Um, I don't really want to read this book because it's got some gay and lesbian stuff that's weird. Oh, the gays and lesbians would be really, really sad that they're being misrepresented. You should join their club. They can really help you on that. Um, you know, I've, I've got like, uh, like, I don't know, like this ingrown toenail. Well, the gay and lesbian club could help. You know, it's like, it's like not even related, you know, and you should join. So is there an agenda? Yes, there is an agenda. And in that agenda, we can, as evangelicals, sometimes feel attacked by the agenda. So here's the question. When you feel attacked by the gay and lesbian community and you feel it's an agenda, do you in any way go, but I'm really open to sitting down and talking with them and building a relationship? Or you just go, no, they're, they're against us, so I'm against them. Well, that's always my concern as Christians, is that the gay community would say, uh, those evangelicals are against us. And therefore, they would never listen to the gospel. Because they equate, you know, uh, kind of our, our political posture with our spiritual areas of importance. And I go, the most important thing, if I'm going to see a, a gay individual not act on gay tendencies, the gospel is the only thing that's going to do that. That's the only thing. As well as all the other things in the list. I'm, I'm a, if I'm going to see a kid not dishonor their parents, I think the gospel is going to be the thing that has to fix that. If I'm going to see somebody that wants to be translated from greed to generosity, the gospel is going to have to fix that. Whatever the sin thing is, the gospel is going to have to fix that. Because when the Holy Spirit takes up residence, that's where there's power. Otherwise, it's legalism again. Just do the law without any strength internally or fortitude to do the law with. Right? So, for me on gay marriage or all of that stuff, I go, those are the secondary issue to the primary issue. And the goal of the church should always be, what's the primary thing? Chase the sin. Here's the sin. Uh, how do we see the sin stopped? Gospel. I mean, it's kind of that simplified in my mind. Not everybody agrees with me on that, and I'm okay with that. Some people know you need to use legislation to stop these things or whatever, and I'm like, I don't have a problem with using legislation to stop certain things but I think it's always we have to kind of factor in, and does this impede the gospel? And to what end? Because if we keep cutting off opportunities for the gospel in an unsaved world, that world just breeds outside of the realm of the gospel. It's just going to breed. If we don't have inlets and access, it just breeds beyond us. And pretty soon it will overwhelm at some juncture. Um, and so that's where I go back to make sure the gospel is the one thing that changes everything. Make sure you follow the actual sin issue and that your heart is to see the sin issue replaced by the Holy Spirit above all else. That's, I took a little more time on that one because I think it is important. I've been approached by people a few different times, and it's just interesting dealing with my daughter as she goes to BC uh, and, and seeing all these worlds kind of come together in a bizarre way. Um, and I keep going back to, ah, oh, Jesus is the one to solve this. And let's make sure we protect that as much as humanly possible. So, Can you explain why we observe the Sabbath on Sunday, and what does it mean to keep the Sabbath holy? Um, pretty much the reason we did that was the early church, when Christ rose, they said, okay, New Covenant, right? So Old Covenant, Saturday. New Covenant, Lord's Day. Sunday. The church started calling Sunday the Lord's Day. And so the church embraced Sunday as kind of the new 
the new symbol of Sabbath. It's not literally the Sabbath. In other words, you go back to like Hebrews 4, and it says, if we're in Christ, we've entered his Sabbath rest. So the new covenant Sabbath is actually Jesus. Jesus is the rest. It's not just rest one day a week, it's rest seven days a week. It's eternal rest. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Right? Matthew chapter 11. And then immediately he goes into chapter 12 and he gets into fights about the Sabbath. There's a reason for that. He says, I'm the Sabbath. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. So I am where you find your rest. So it's not on a day. It's in Christ. Right? So we fulfill Sabbath, fourth commandment, in Christ. Um, but the church saw there, there was a day to worship. And that day was Sunday in honor of kind of that new covenant type of memorial to Sabbath ideas, right? As to keep it holy, it's just to keep it uncommon. The word holy just means uncommon or set apart. Something special and unique where God is really reflected on. Um, And I think that's increasingly harder because everything in our culture wants to impose on Sunday. And we're getting really good at saying, if nothing else is in the schedule, God will get my time. We're getting remarkably good at that. Um... Because, you know, I've said it before, if it's between event or church, for many of us, event will win every time. Every time. You know, rarely is it, oh, we're going to say no to the event because we have church. You know who's awesome at this? The Mormons. They're really good at saying no. Right? I mean, this is one of those areas where they kind of shame me sometimes. I'm like, yeah, they're they're good at that. Um, They kind of take their stand. But, but. But in a culture that's increasingly using Sunday for all sorts of activities, it's just easier for us to go, well, you know, it's, it's not as critical to keep it holy. Um, and, and I think that's the way we do keep it holy. We're, we're a little uncommon. We're different than the surroundings. That's the way we model some of that, that keeping it holy. So, yeah. Why does Redemption Church require regroup leaders to be members versus just having them trained and sign a leader agreement? Um, I don't. I think because we really didn't envision a, a stage that says we'll just train them and have a leader agreement. Um, we kind of just kind of probably keep it a little bit simpler, saying, well, if a leader agreement is the same standards as membership, now it's just membership. I don't think we would have a lesser set of standards for a leader than a member. We would just say they're one and the same. So what you might call a leader agreement, we would say is the exact same standard as membership. So we could add that layer, but it would be identical. You know, we'd still say this is just sort of what we would expect of all regroup leaders uh, to be actual members uh, because you would be signing off in the exact same expectations. So, good question, but that's really what it would end up being. Uh, do you believe in the existence of ghosts? Only around Halloween. Um, so, oddly enough, they come to my door, they want candy, creepiest thing. Um, so, no, no, you know, here's... Kind of a yes-no. Here, here's what I mean by this. Um, you go back, there's, there's this scene where Saul approaches the witch of Endor and says, I want to conjure up the ghost of um, Samuel. And Samuel appears. And the witch freaks out, like, whoa, I didn't see that coming. This is usually faked. Um, you know, like, you know, so she's more freaked than anybody. You know what I mean? And he's like, whoa, why have you summoned me? You know, and it's this really weird scene. It's the only scene in the whole Bible where you see any semblance of a ghost. And I define ghost as the dearly departed comes back in spirit form and is saying, communicating, whatever. Um, it's the only occurrence, and I actually go, I think it's, the only occurrence for a reason, I think God actually is, is in the equation on this. 
So it's not that she really summoned the dead. It's that God is going to bring a judgment on Saul, and Saul needs to know it. And so God sends the prophet to basically say, you're doomed, dude. Buckle up. Um, so it's, it's kind of that thing. So with that said, uh, do I believe or do I think the Bible substantiates the idea that our loved ones who have gone can communicate with mediums and reveal to us things that give us peace? Uh, I would say no. I really do not believe that those are our departed loved ones doing that. What I would say is I think there's a high probability those are demons mimicking things that we care about to lead us away from God. Um, and so, you know, it, and, and again, there's a lot of speculation behind this. But, you know, I have no doubt that we are perpetually as a race observed by another race. You know, whether you want to call those fallen angels or you call them demons or you call them true godly angels or whatever term you want to kind of use. Basically, there's an angelic world fallen and still in God's allegiance that watches human affairs. Uh, Romans or uh, Hebrews 13 says you might have entertained angels and you didn't even know it. Right. So there's clearly an audience. And so in our lives, if there's an audience of demonic beings that watch our family and watch the events and then you know, somebody dies, and you go to a medium who's already in touch with, quote, the spirit world, that's just a perfect medium for that demon to be like, oh, you know what, just tell them, you remember when Grandpa put that in the box in the garage, because he watched him do it, and they go, oh, look, it's in the box in the garage. And, and what, what does that ultimately do? It undermines any authority of this book. It gets everybody off point on God, gospel, worship, and gets them captivated by just ghosts in the afterlife and mediums that hear the voices of demons and say it's your loved ones. So, um, you know, there's, there's real, I think, spiritual power behind things like mediums and channelers and all of that. There's power, right? When somebody says, oh, but they were right. I'm not going to say, no, they were making stuff up all along the way. Say, no, they, they, they might be right, but they're actually wrong. Yeah, they, they may have been accurate, but they're in demonic territory, you know. And so, uh, was it like Second uh, Corinthians 10 or 11, Satan makes himself an angel of light? He can look really good, you know. Probably looks better than he does sinister most of the time. So, yeah, those are, those are there's definitely power. And, and whether those are kind of the way people see ghosts, no, I think it's something more sinister than that. So, yeah. Why doesn't the Bible condemn having more than one wife? <laughs> uh, uh, you know, that's always my quick default answer. Now, it's interesting. It, it, this is one of those weird things. I remember um, it was Chuck Swindoll one time that he said, you know, when I die, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God, why did you not specifically, you know, like say that's wrong? And I think God's going to say, did you see any guy with more than one wife? Life was hell for that guy. It should just be built into the equation. You know, like, <laughs> you know what I mean? So... To try to emotionally fill up one woman's bank is hard enough. You know, it's like, throw three in or five in. You should just know. Everybody should look and go, I don't want to be like that guy ever. Um, you know, so, but yeah, it's true. The Bible never actually forbids that. It doesn't say no. What, what it does say is it gives the architecture of, um, you know, husband and wife, the two become one. So you always see the command is that. God also doesn't say I command you to take up multiple wives. I mean, God would say, whoa, whoa, wait. He puts a lot of restrictions on marriage, but then people would do things, and it was like God didn't always just speak directly against that. He would speak against the conditions that surrounded that. He never spoke against that. Uh, as to why, 
I will listen in when Swindoll asks the question um, and find out why, because I don't know why, you know. Uh, which I'll, I'll tell you, I had this conversation just this week. Somebody said about, well, we want to make sure we're protecting the biblical definition of marriage. And I'm like, oh, you haven't read the Old Testament because um, there's some real wacky polygamy in there. So uh, that God doesn't condemn, you know, and that's what complicates it a little bit, too. So um, don't know why. He never supports it, never endorses it, never commands it, always commands one man, one woman. But yeah, he, he didn't he didn't come against it necessarily in a direct way. So, Alright, by the way, if you want to be assured that your question gets answered, attach a 20 to your card. <laughs> Nobody's done that yet, so I thought I would remind people. So I'm... D- PayPal, wow. Sure, sure. <laughs> They're like, I'm texting, so it's got to be PayPal all the way. Just so. pass up your debit card with the code. Uh, what is Redemption Church's heart in regard to global mission? Basically, this is, this is where I, I'm going I'm to try to make it really consolidated because it's kind of a big idea. Um, but when we look at the book of Acts, for example, we see the rapid expansion, not just of the gospel, but of the church. You can't really separate gospel and church. Um, and, so, and, and, and so with that, we would look and say the ultimate heart behind how we approach this topic is less to use the term missions and way more to use the term church planting. Now, the, the heart or the mind behind that is very synonymous. We're, we're not saying church planting is a radically different I- idea than missions or whatever else, but we're wanting to kind of create a culture around this that says what we're really called to do is to go and see churches planted. That is the heart of what the missional endeavor of the book of Acts was all about. So Paul never walked into a place like Thessalonica or Philippi or Colossae and said, throw up the revival tent, I'm going to preach the gospel, people are going to get saved, and then I'm going to split, and whether they coalesce or not, great. It's really just about whether people are saved, and I'm, I'm moving on. That beca- you know, like, that's the big idea. No, he always had the big idea of the church. Because what Paul would say is that Christ died for the church. The church is his body. The church is actually the goal of the cross, oddly enough. That's the goal of the cross. That's why you go back to like Ephesians chapter 5, where it says, Husbands love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Right? It's the church he bought with his precious blood in 1 Peter. Um, it's God's precious church in Acts 20. So the church becomes the heart of God. The church becomes the mission of Christ. The church becomes the goal. And so that's where we're saying our heart is to see churches planted globally. So that's where we're going to really see our focus on missions. As we send people out, as we subsidize whatever else, it's connecting to the effort of planting churches. Now, with that, what we're not saying is that everybody that is supported or sent from redemption has to be, quote, a church planter in the most particular sense. In other words, they're going into site A, they're going to be doing the preaching, they're going to be doing the rallying, they're going to be doing the training of elders, all of that. What we're saying, though, is whatever it is, it needs to be tethered to the effort of planting churches. And then with that, we would put the added thing in there that says, and the goal of planted churches should be to become the hub of a community. That's why even in our philosophy, we say, by the, uh, uh, for the glory of God, by the grace of God, for the good of our city, we believe the local church should become an access point to many good things for the city. Right? That all good things should emanate from the local church. So you look at the Colossians, for example, that just went to Indonesia, 
or they're on their way to Indonesia, uh, when they plant, we're saying we're behind you pretty radically and we want to intensify that support behind you because we want you to see a church planted and it becomes the good thing for, in their case, a village, right? But it is the emanating focus of all those good things in that community. Now, does that say all the other things that have the label missions over them are bad things, wrong things, lesser things? No, that doesn't mean that at all. What it means is as a church, every church or every ministry is called to particular things. It can't be everything for everybody in every way. So we just really looked at, prayed about, studied, you know, Acts in particular, and said, what is the heart we have in this? Well, let's really get behind the effort to see churches planted globally. That could be local, that, you know, so five miles away, could be 5,000 miles away, doesn't matter, but that's the effort we want to get behind. Now, again, like I said, what falls into that, that's a little bit more of an art than a science, you know, because it may be somebody that they're a part of an agency that helps mobilize planters to get on the field. We'd say, well, that's in the wheelhouse of planting. Uh, you know, it may be, you know, any other number of things, potentially surveyors that are surveying for local church planting. We'd say, well, that might fit in that that sphere. So again, it's an art. Every circumstance is taken uniquely and individually, um, but it still goes back to church planting becomes the center point of what we care about as a church. And so that's where we're kind of steaming toward uh, on these things. So great question, but that's that's the heart behind it. Like I said, there's a lot more to it, but that's hopefully an encased viewpoint of it. So uh, this has to have a disclaimer. This was not asked by a pastor. <laughs> In Numbers 16.49, God allowed or caused a plague to kill 15,000 people because they complained about Moses. Why did God do this? He was mad. Um, that's it. Not, not like out of control, blah, like that. Uh, clearly, whatever their offense was, was so lofty, that's what he saw was the just measure for the offense. Um, I'm not going to get into this question too much, not because I'm not willing to tackle it, but because we're going to tackle it like in a week. Um, different context, but we're going to look at the mass extermination of the entire human race with the flood. Um, so I think that kind of trumps this number in that sense. And the topic is the same. Why would God do that? And how is that just? And all those kinds of things. And so we will get into that. But the bottom line is God says, you know what? You've, you've, I've shown you much grace, much mercy, much compassion, much forbearance and you you keep doing this Here, here's a way to baseline it um it's machiavellian almost but it's a baseline it we'll just clear it all right sounds very harsh like the, whoa wait a minute that really affects my loving god vision well it shouldn't and that's why we'll get into it with the flood a little bit more but it still comes back to people go well i i, I wouldn't follow a god who does that and i'd be like good luck with that argument when you die you know it's like um I mean, honestly, it's, it's, it's a little bit like you're watching the video footage of the bomb coming down at the Taliban building, and they're like, we hate America, and we detest your drones. Yeah, you know, like, still, you can protest, but it doesn't change kind of the reality of things. And, and, and I say that a little bit with some sharpness, because, again, I've been that, in that place myself where I'm like, well, if that's what God does, and if that's who God is, I don't want any part of that God. As though suddenly I stand toe-to-toe in being able to dictate to God his actions and justness and decisions. Uh, I, I can't. What I have to default to, though, is to say he's just. He really is just. He knows what's going on in those hearts better than I do. He knows the conditions better than I do. What we're left with is a couple of verses describing a whole climate of things, right? So I know I'm already starting to preach the message of next week, but um, 
The flood, it wasn't like God said, build an ark, and in six weeks it was built and there was a flood. Decades and decades and decades have gone by of an opportunity for a change in course. Nobody wants to change, you know? And so at some point you realize no, nobody's changing here. And so then God takes actions because, again, it's just a stalemate. They're not going to change. That's what brings out that justness of God. And it's just. And he knows better than we do. So, Do we still partner with a church in Arizona? We do. We don't end up talking about it much, which I feel terrible about. Um, but yeah, they are still going down there. And so they, they augment, they use our Sunday morning stuff uh, about twice a month. So they're trying to get a couple of their guys there preaching more live, kind of embodying a little bit more of their DNA as a church. Uh, and then they, they augment with what we do. Uh, and so, matter of fact, I'm kind of re-getting synced up with those guys down there to be an encouragement to them, give them some continued tips on navigation. But most church plants, they, they don't survive 18 months. These guys have been doing it now for north of three years, three and a half, something like that. So they, they survived that. And the cool thing about them, they're in an area that, that really got nailed by everything that's happened in the economy. A lot of guys were building houses that just, everything dried up. And this church has been a wonderful opportunity to reach that group. I mean, they, they have like a once a month, um, like a food kitchen, basically, or, you know, like a soup kitchen in that sense. Uh, and also they give away boxes of food. And they, every month, they give away, I think, 180 boxes of food that are like, here's a, you know, something that has enough meals for a certain amount of time. So only one box per family, 180 families every month, you know. And, and these were guys that, you know, Four years ago, we're swinging hammers, making good money, and today there's just no, no jobs in that area. They've lost their homes, they've lost their vehicles, they've lost all these things, uh, and this church has really been there for them. So it's been great. Um, they've seen a lot of people come to Christ through that ministry, and so it's been really, really cool as well. So, yep, they're, they're still going, doing stuff, and using our stuff too. So, Oh, we can do a couple more because we're close to 45 minutes. Okay. Uh, as a college student, how should I deal with how should I deal with the people that I observe being religious zealots shouting part of the truth and anger and condemnation rather than the whole gospel of love? Um, I think there's two parts to that. One is obviously being a light in dark places. So you're the counter voice, kindly, you know, kind of attract that way. That's part of it. The other is if you have any relationship to kind of what, what is spoken of as the zealots, um, it's to go to them and say, hey, man, is this the, the most effective route to getting the gospel to people, you know? And, and, you know, if you can have that voice, they may or may not hear you, you know? But you, at least you're trying. You're, you're trying to share the truth and love. This is not going to be the way that somebody's going to go, I should consider this Jesus, you know? Um, but the other part of it is you, you be that right thing. Don't just let it default out to those loud voices. You become the model and the example of a clear articulation of the full spirit of the gospel. So that would be kind of a simplified form, but I think it's the thing you have to do. And none of that's going to be comfortable. It just won't be comfortable, no matter how you slice it. And that's always the tough part. Being an ambassador for Christ, this is why Jesus said, uh, man, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. Sometimes that hate comes from the world, but sometimes it comes from the legalists. I've been far more hated by the legalists than I ever have by the world. I've been more persecuted by Christians and churches than I ever have been by unsaved people. You know, by far. I've never been sued by non-Christians. I took Christians. Um, So truth be told. And so, uh, be that thing that's different, right? Be that thing that's different, and God's going to honor that, but it won't always be easy, so. What is the role of suffering in our lives? Um, 
I, I love what C.S. Lewis said about it, where he talks about, and I think it's even in the movie Shadowlands, but it's that idea of it's, you know, God's blows kind of carving us as a stone. Um, it, it's like there has to be all this pain and chipping and chiseling and hardship to really shape us into something that's substantial and usable and beautiful. And that's what suffering does. I was just having a conversation with a friend of mine yesterday that's gone through some real suffering in, in his perspective of things. And we were talking about how all suffering is an opportunity to either um, shape you into great things or embitter you. So part of the issue on why we suffer, I go, well, why we suffer is to grow us, but if we don't respond to suffering well, it will embitter us, enshackle us, enslave us, and ultimately kill us. So we have to kind of make a decision when suffering comes our direction. Uh, my brother-in-law and I were talking about just the other night at our house where he was sharing with me something out of James 1 that he had been reading. And again, it's the, as a Christian, we, we sh- as Americans, we have an aversion to suffering. Right? We actually want to get rid of it as rapidly as possible. We want to expunge it from our children's lives as quickly as possible. We don't like to see them sad or cry or go without or whatever. So we don't welcome suffering. But what James would say is you should actually welcome it. You should actually receive it. And instead of it letting it embitter you, you should actually let it liberate you. Because what, how suffering can liberate us is it can actually cause us to go, oh, what's the big picture? What's the big idea? What's the deepest parts of my character that need refining? Because those are going to be the deepest roots that hold me in all the seasons of life. But if I don't want suffering and I don't want to have some pain and I want to avert that, one day real suffering is going to come and it will wipe you out. Because you just don't have roots that are dug down deep enough to withstand it. So as Christians, we shouldn't, I'm not saying we should pray every day, Jesus, oh, if you love me, make me suffer. I'm not, you know, like, today has enough problems for itself. You don't need to pray that. Um, But at the same time, don't curse suffering. Don't become embittered at suffering. Don't go, oh, how can I just make the suffering end as quick as possible? Really, the thing should be, Jesus, what is it that you want to work out in me through the suffering? And how can I honor you? How can I praise you as I suffer? I go back to, you know, like the apostles in prison. You know, they're, they're beat up, false testimonies against them, in jail, and they're like, what's a good hymn to sing right now? Right? Or, or like in Acts 4 and 5, where there the apostles for the first time are arrested, and they get the tar beat out of them, and then they come out like chest bumping and high-fiving, and we're worthy to suffer for his namesake. You know, they were excited about suffering for his name's sake. Jesus says, when you're persecuted, leap for joy in Luke 6. Um, extreme emotional responses on the positive when we are going through the negative. Um, and so some of those are people imposed, some of those are unjust, some of those are circumstantial, some of those are health. Any number of factors bring suffering. And it's in there that we again go, Jesus, may I get every ounce of great stuff out of the suffering, right? May I learn profound things from the suffering. Because Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, I love it, he says that we will be able to comfort others with the same comfort that God has comforted us as we go through afflictions. When we come out the other side, we're a counselor. We're an aide. We're a friend. We're empathetic. We're, we're sensitive too. And so the fruit that comes out of suffering can be really, really profound. I remember one lady I was talking to one time said the most beautiful present God ever gave her was in the ugliest wrapping called cancer. So suffering. And she said it was the most beautiful gift. It was just in really, really ugly paper. 
Um, and, and I love that because that is, again, it goes back to the role of suffering and what it produces in us. So great question, hard topic. Um, I don't always do well in the context of suffering to go, oh, yes, Jesus. I'll be like, all right, I'm going to punch him in the face. You know, and, like, I have those moments uh, for sure. And then I've got to come back to, oh, but wait, suffering produces in me certain things. And, and, and I love the way James puts it because it says, then you will be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Only suffering can do that. You know what? A great vacation doesn't make you perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Right? Just an awesome day with friends is awesome. Ecclesiastes. Have good food, drink good wine, enjoy the wife of your youth. Enjoy every meaningless day under the sun. You know, like, enjoy it, but what really produces character is when we're tested. Right? Not when we're just chilling, but when we're tested. And so it's a great gift. Just sometimes comes in pretty ugly wrapping. So, yeah. Well, as the band comes back up to the stage, I wonder if we can thank Pastor Matt for doing such a great job this morning. All right, so I'm going to go ahead and pray so the Holy Spirit can fix everything I said. All right, so let's go ahead and do that. Jesus, I thank you for again today. I thank you for you, Holy Spirit, even as these questions come. And there's some things where there's like the first few seconds where I'm like, golly, is there, what verse do you want me to share? What thing? And then you just start to bring it in like, it's just like popcorn popping. I thank you for that. That is not me. That is not my might, my strength. That's your grace. I thank you, Holy Spirit, for that. I thank you for your church. I thank you that you died for your church. You care about your church. Even our question about missions where we said it's really about the expansion of your church, that that's what you left. The church is your body. May we love your church and revere your church and protect and defend your church above all other things. And with that, we are protecting and defending your gospel. So we thank you and praise you in your awesome name. Amen.